Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, people, uh, I'm very excited. A good friend of mine from college who lives back in New Jersey is coming out on Thursday to see me. I saw him once in the last 20-odd years. I found him. And it's going to be interesting because he's a soccer player in college. And, uh, and every soccer player in the 80s looked the same. They had the same haircut. They wore the same sneakers. And they all just, you knew it. Like, you'd see them walk around and you go, that guy plays soccer. So my friend Jimmy Patches will be coming out. And I'll be glad to see him. And my guest today is a fellow New Jersey man, a very good actor. Zan, how are you doing, Xander Berkeley? I'm pretty good, thanks, Steve. Now, what you said you used to go to, uh, up to Cherry Hill, you may have played. What sport did you play? Well, I, I, I was up until a very specific year. I was involved with all those sports, like basketball, baseball, wrestling, soccer. Um, it would depend on the season. See, but, it's uh, such an East Coast thing. It's because when it was cold, you'd go inside and play basketball, yeah. or you go outside and play hockey. Here, it's just because in California, it's always warm. So you're like, you don't, you don't really see kids playing street hockey out here. Yeah, and, and because I was a baby hippie, I, I kind of had a very clear, uh, I, I was going to be a Major League Baseball player until the age of 13, and I was sort of a very uh, a, a sort of traumatic uh, breaking of the way with, uh, with a coach, and I turned my back on sports and never looked back. I went into the arts and... And girls, and, and never, never went back. What? Uh, when did you start? Yeah. When did you start knowing you wanted to act? And what? What brought you to that? Well, it's funny because I, I remember a coach. Uh, I remember getting braces. I think essentially because my sister had braces. Um, and uh, hey, it's not fair. She has braces. <laughs> I know. It's like that's like every family. All the kids have braces. I, yeah. Same thing. I, I think my brother had perfect teeth. Same thing. And braces. I was a pitcher, and uh, and my, I was going out to the man, and the coach noticed that I had braces. He goes, Berkeley, what do you got braces for? You got perfect teeth. What, are you going to be an actor? And it sort of like light bulb, ding. Well, now there's something I hadn't thought of. But I'd already started sort of mastering my, my bad guy roles, I think, on the mound, because I would psych out the batters when I was up there and just sort of stare them down and... Make him think I was a little crazy. Where, where did you learn to stare from? Because I know there used to be a pitcher named Al Herboski who used to go crazy, and they called him the Mad Hungarian, and he would that look. What Was it just instinctual to just stare yeah, him down? I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in New Jersey, and, and it, I, I modeled myself after various pitchers at the time because I really was more of an actor than I was anything. Um, but I, I, I remember imitating Jim Bouton's very high kick and Mel Stottlemyre's sidearm, and and uh, I, I would imitate you know various pitching styles. But any time I would notice, whenever they could creep in in the old days to a close up, the fierce look in the eyes that there was something. Oh, that that would be something to see that in a pitcher's face, and I, I, I would play on that, and I started developing psycho eyes early on. There, and I think I perfected it when I was living in New York later just to keep the real bad guys at okay. bay. <laughs> Talk to myself a little bit, get the psycho eyes going, they'd leave you alone. Now, did you uh, start You started acting when 13, 14, or when, when did you start? But, uh, well, there was a little uh, a, a, a lost period where I, I parted ways, where I was too old for Little League, but uh, just wanted to separate from organized sports. A little bit of a feeling at the time as the uh, Vietnam War era of, of not wanting to be sort of... Um, being trained for going to war there was a, a little bit of feeling of the the rah rah thing was a, a little bit of um of uh training for warlike attitude and com competitive sports and something in my thinking started to orient towards I, i'd rather compete with myself than with others and I, I i bailed hay in the summer and so i would set my my goals for myself physically and it, much to my own detriment because i i didn't know where to stop and i i I messed up my back and did how all do, kinds of crazy things. How do you find a job bailing hay? I mean, just I oh, mean, man, I I had steady work. I I, I worked nonstop bailing hay. I, I didn't have to. I didn't get encouraged to by my parents. But I started when I was around twelve, just a buck a bale, you know, you and you'd start picking them off the field and put them on the wagon. And then a little bit later, it was straight on a baler would be shooting them out, and you'd be going around behind the on a wagon shooting out bales. <laughs> They're heavy. Take, they're 75 pounds of bale, and you'd stack 750 of them in the course of a day uh, on seven or eight wagons, and then you'd unload that many of them into people's barns at night. And I had there was one guy who owned all the equipment, and he would run all the, uh, the tractors and balers and everything, and I would be the laborer behind 
doing it all. And, and I was just, that was where all my jock impulses got channeled into. So I got my long hair because it was right at that point where you had to have the long hair and I couldn't have the long hair on the sports because that's what broke it with the coaches. They, you were representing God, country, and school. And there was a lot of problems with that at the time. But I was very identified with the environmental movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, and all these things that I got from my parents, I think, who were the only bohemians in town. Okay. And uh, my father was a painter and, and uh, you know, also a big encourager of, he gave me my first, like, nose putty and earwax and weird things. Like, they always gave me art supplies and then saw that I was interested in acting from pretty early on. And so I started uh, doing weird special effects makeup when I was a kid. Okay. And then I got adopted into a theater uh, company, experimental theater troupe, when I was in high school. And uh, and I was always interested in the sort of the combinations of art and theater, so uh, as a makeup man and mask maker and stuff like that. But I, I, I zeroed into the acting world pretty early on and had encouragement from from the family in a way that a lot of people don't see that's so important because a lot of times yeah a lot of people you know sit there and go what you want to be an actor or you want to be a comedian and they're like well, yeah get it yeah you know what get your degree yeah, you see how that works yeah well you'll three and it's good that it's encouraging because it means so much because my parents supported me when i did stand-up comedy they said oh well you know you have your degree well you know do it and if it doesn't work out you know you can always use your degree and they but they supported it and that's so you're right it's so important because a lot of times you if you go you're already going into a very hard business i mean acting is not easy i mean you've had a wonderful career and you're one of the few that i mean it constantly works and if you're going into that kind of career and your parents don't like it you already have that strike against yeah, you it's like you're going imagine. into a negative yeah. you're going into a thing that you have to be so positive you're going into the negativity yeah, and I, I mean, for me, it was like the reverse because my parents were kind of freaked out by the fact that I was a jock when I was a kid because they couldn't re relate to that. Okay. And so, in a way, I think I was it, it was... it was so good because I look at now, if I'd become an athlete, I would have been a wash shop yeah. a long time ago, but... I feel like I'm just coming into my thing. See now. that it's true. You're you're it's you're like a wine. You're aging yeah. nicely. And and I, uh, we were talking about it just before we went on the air about uh, your uh, uh, you know finding interest in the obscure character actors. And I I know I got that from my old man. Who uh, you know there was a great golden era. In they talk about the golden era of TV now, but there was. Um, very late at night on Friday and Saturday nights, I think both, uh, when I was growing up in the in the 60s, there was a PBS ran a series of the great foreign films um, on Channel 13 late at night. And you'd see all, I got to watch all of Bergman, all of Kurosawa, all of Fellini, all of Truffaut. And it would always be after everybody else got my father would this was his chance because couldn't get into new york to see these movies first run and then they'd come out on on this on the pbs thing and so i i sneak downstairs and watch these movies with him or great old film noir you know he's a big bogart fan and and it was always the obscure character actors that were in one filmmakers film after the next and you go now do you remember do you remember who he was right and he was the guy that i go no and that was it for me it's like i want to be that guy it's so cool yeah it's so cool because you do sit there and it's especially now because you know tv you know if if you're on an episode of, you know castle's always on reruns law i mean law and order is so funny they still play the original law and orders but they don't even have cell phones i mean and you know and it's funny because you watch it and you go wow there was not that dna was very uh a lot different now but the character that's the thing you see the guy and you love that when you go hey what was that guy you know because sometimes you go what i know what was he on and that's the ground we have imdb so you can look and like for you you have over 200 credits so it's like okay he was on everything <laughs> but i mean it's just it's cool and it makes it great and i think it makes it great for the actors because now because there's a, i mean back then you you saw pbs there wasn't as many stations and now there's tv on all the time and so actors are getting more notice now and recognized like to the people who wouldn't have seen them years ago yeah and i mean in a lot of ways, um, uh, there's so much fixation on celebrity now, and um, and there's the corporate reality of selling a commodity, a known commodity, knowing what you're buying, and the value of something that has that is a known popular 
product. And obviously, you know, celebrity fame is is a very important part of the business. If people want to have a starring role, you've got to be famous because that's going to put as a when it was putting seats in a movie theater or viewers on a on a on a network that they can rely on or a cable outlet. And so, I always sort of knew I was sacrificing that the great roles because I was deliberately almost sabotaging any opportunity for that by changing the way I looked and the way I talked in one role after the next and not really aiming for and I remember agent after agent going you can't take these parts these aren't good parts to take because if they know you're willing to take these parts they won't take you seriously for bigger roles and and I was always sort of from early on very attracted to even an incidental role. Okay. If it was with a great filmmaker. Um, and or to change the way I looked. Any chance I got to physically change the way I looked. I started out in, in repertory theater where to me the biggest thrill possible was to have uh, a subscription audience that went to each play who came to the rap party. Um, or the, the whatever the cast party that they would have for the that that audience that was there for every play, and they would refuse to believe that you had played that role in the previous play. See, that's just so great. Say, now, so this is the first time. In this, well, actually, I, I played that part in. No, you didn't. That's that. That must be great for an actor, though. That was the greatest joy I could imagine. It's like actually, well, actually, I did. Yeah, I know, but it's good. When they say no, you did. That's the best yeah. thing. Like what? What? You, know, you get that look. Like some people, you sit there and like it happens to actors all the time. You're like, wait, you're not, you don't have a club foot. You know, it's like yeah. people notice stuff. But that must be for you. It must have been great. That 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 was the biggest thrill, and and I always sort of wanted to appeal to the people that could actually penetrate through to that and go, oh, I get it. That is that guy, and, and make the connective tissue, and. Filmmakers, and, and I, I have to say it sounds a little uh, whatever, but the English directors, I worked with a lot of English directors early on because they got it for some reason. I think it's part of the English tradition of transformation in the theater. Um, and my, my thing was to try and bring the minutia, the subtlety of film acting, um, and in combination with the physical transformation of stage acting with the skills of a makeup artist that great stage actors have from because you just had to come in and do your own makeup and I'd studied stage makeup from early on and being an artist that was something that just was if I felt like I got there instead of a half an hour early but an hour early and I could change the way I looked to where when I looked in the mirror before I went on stage I believed I was this different person I didn't have to do any digging or searching I, I was that other person okay. And that told me, it informed how I moved, how I spoke. And it's, it's right up there with one of my favorite parts of a job is going into my costume fitting. And they're, invariably, they're just such cool people that do costume design on films and TV it, shows. Well, it's just it's something different because they're, you know, it depends. And my brother's uh, friend was the costume designer on The Sopranos. And I had Ray Abruzzo on, and he had cowboy boots. And like no one thought, wait, a mobster with cowboy But they, they just, then people buy that. Like, you're not going to buy someone, you know, if, if someone dresses me up like a mobster, I'm still not going to look like a mobster. You know, they, I mean, they just, the costume designers, they have to be cool because they set a whole tone that people take for granted. Because when you watch TV, you just think, Oh yeah, you know, a lot of people probably just think when you're playing a villain, oh, he probably dresses like that in real life, and it must be great when you deal with him because you, you know, it must have been great. Yeah, well, you know, it's like we were using the term that gets, you know, like confetti thrown around, uh, the golden era of the what is the opposite, the plastic era of television in the '80s. I would dread going into a wardrobe fitting because there was some corporate mandate that the networks had that all the colors had to be wide and all of the shirts had to be made out of some synthetic material and 
and the pants were just so nasty and like what no no my dude is not wearing this <laughs> exactly. he's not and he won't and <laughs> I would go down fighting <laughs> and that's like no you know what this is why I won't do a TV series in the 80s I, I will keep taking the obscure independent movie that shoots in a foreign country you've never heard of because I will be unavailable for yeah. pilot season I will make no money I will become unfamous and I will keep working but I will maintain a little bit of integrity, and I will take big roles in little movies you will never see, and I will take little roles in big movies with great directors, and I will hopefully learn and keep honing my craft and dodge that bullet of terrible taste that was happening at any time during the 80s in television, on a, by and large, and throughout some of the 90s. But then more and more now in television, you have great sort of filmmaker sensibilities, and when you go in for a fitting, you've got like, you know, you go and have a conversation and it's like great storytelling and you just have the dialogue and they have all these choices for you. And you go, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, I hadn't even thought, oh, that's fantastic. And once you put it on and you find the things that you maybe bring some things and they have the, all these choices, then you look in the mirror and they take their little pictures and they send it for approval to the higher ups. And you go, yeah, but this is the one we want, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then once, then you know who this guy is. You know how he walks. You know how he sits. You know everything. And and that's, to me, like, you know, the makeup. Uh, I, I started developing certain allergies from all the stuff that I'd worn over the years. So I don't do as much of it anymore. Okay. But I still, I still will go to the mats and some of my best friends are these great like, very proud of the fact that Billy Corso who did uh, uh, Foxcatcher is up for another Academy Award this year and I feel fairly certain he's going to get it because how about that you know I didn't I didn't see the movie but I saw Carell is like unnoticeable and you sit there and yeah because and you think of Steve Carell from The Office you know and or just that, that role he plays and when you see it, you go holy crap well, and it's everybody sings Bennett Miller's praises as being just they they call him a genius, and that's one of those words that people bandy around as well. But uh, Jeannie McCarthy, who cast that show, is an old old friend of mine from the Sid and Nancy days and on, and and William Corso, Billy Corso's dear friend of mine from for decades now. Um, and they both said, look, we don't like to use this word, but there's no other word to describe Bennett Miller. And they both said, it will, you can just tell. I, I watched a couple of little things that Billy put together. It's, it's a, a thing of mine. I love the makeup when it's done well. And it's hardly ever done as well, as obsessively, perfectly as it was done in this movie. And Steve Carell, instead of being uh, in some way constrained by it, because it's hard work to put yourself through that, you can see him collaborating with it and the nuance that it took him, the way it took him inward. Not that he wouldn't have made that journey anyway, but whatever Bennett Miller brought him in the way of ideas of what he wanted him to do with that performance, in combination with what that makeup did to him physically, and we're, that three-way, I feel like it's really a beautiful three-way collaboration that happened there that just is so magical, uh, the subtlety of that film performance. And yeah, you wouldn't expect it. Yeah. Steve is more of a comedian, but that is bang. Yeah, and that's, that, you're so right, because when you see good makeup, when, when someone just transforms, you know, I saw American Sniper. Bradley Cooper put a lot of weight on. To me... It didn't look, because you think Bradley Cooper, a hangover with a suit and the handsome guy. For me, it's just, that was on makeup, but that was just transformation. You, that's when I, when I leave a movie or TV and I go, like you said, when people go, no, it wasn't, you know, when we would do the play. When I do that, I go, man, that's good. That's what I love. Because you sit there and you go, wow, wait, I didn't, because a lot of times if it's a star, you, you know, don't see star, you think, oh, well, he's yeah. going to be, you know, Bradley Cooper. But then you see him and you go, God, I did, I not once did I think that was Bradley Cooper. And that's like with Steve Carell. You know, I mean, I'm sure you sit there and you go, that's not the guy from The Office. That's, you know, that's, that's it's like great. you didn't see him. That's so great. I mean, that's yeah, so great. I'm looking at your resume. You were, you had, one of your first gigs was MASH. Yeah, it How, was. That's so cool. I mean, what was that? I mean, was that one of your first parts? 
Yeah, that was pretty early on. Uh, it was kind of a, a torturous experience, actually, even though Alan Alda and, and all the people, the actors were so lovely, and, and uh, as you would expect. They'd been doing it forever, but, you know, you come on some of these shows and these people you've never heard of and you never will hear of again, you know, for the past 30-some-odd years, the overinflated egos, beyond belief. But there's that was the biggest hit show and uh, continues to be one of the longest running in perpetuity. And th there was just such loveliness, such a lack of vainglorious uh, behavior and gentle nature and i remember harry uh, henry morgan harry harry morgan harry morgan um i had scenes with him my my i played a, a marine who lost his eyesight because he'd been drinking from something that turned out to have uh something in it that caused him to lose his eyesight and he's waiting to hear the prognosis and and there, it was a simple enough thing and he's just saying well am i going to see you again you can tell me I'm, I'm a marine I, I can take it and uh harry morgan says maybe maybe and he says, maybe, maybe maybe and he loses it and starts crying and he says i'm not crying i'm not crying and i remember in the audition nailing it and getting the part handed to me that day and i remember the director wanted to come in and be real fancy and make it a big long dolly shot that included four other sequences with other soldiers on other bunks it wasn't a long thing but instead of getting coverage on something like that that it's a lot yeah you could be fancy you could try and get your day you could try and you know get brownie points with the network because look at how i banged out that day uh, made it nearly impossible for the cameraman to get focus on all these different tricky things and different sequences and um, made it so that they had to do eight takes in a row and wow and I didn't know from eight takes in a row early on I knew from delivering a performance and right I, and they did four rehearsals and I didn't know from four rehearsals in a row and I remember it's one of the only times I did the scene and four times in a row the entire crew applauded my performance because tears just came jumping out. And I'd been totally macho up until that moment when he says, maybe, and it just, boom. And then I just fought to pull them back in, and they were jumping out. And the entire crew applause four times. Rehearsals. They don't tell me, hey, we're not shooting yet. We're trying to get this tricky, tricky camera maneuver. Okay. <laughs> they, they don't say save it. They don't say, hang on, just mark it. They let me go. <laughs> and then they do two more. And two more times they applaud, and, and I'm still doing it. And, and Harry Morgan's putting his hand on my shoulder. It's not your fuck up, kid. It's theirs. <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's unbelievable. It's not your fuck up, that's for sure. And they... But take eight. Well, you know, I was a kid, but eight times in a row, still right. rough. And I looked like I'd been spurting tears. But when the scene began, and they don't give you a minute to recollect and to get the red out of your face or out of your eyes. And I went dry. And I was still there. And I still, you know, partly because of all that bailing hay I did. But the stress of that, I remember putting my back out and just going home so, like, tweaked because... I know if only they'd gotten the, the rehearsal or if they'd gotten the first or the second take. Right. It would have been killer. But they didn't get the cut. You know, it's the kind of thing where they, it's, it's, I got some stories. I got some I, I want to ask stories. you, you mentioned Sid and Nancy. Now, I love that movie. And I was, when growing up, we knew about Nancy because she was from. New Jersey. Yeah, actually she was from Railside, Philadelphia, I think. Oh, right. And my cousins lived in that town. I think she was in Huntington. Right. But yeah, they how, went there to shoot that. How did, I mean, was that your, I mean, how did that come about? I mean, did you know it was going to be, because it was a cult class. I mean, it's a cult class because it's got a very underground following. I mean, did you know that would be something Yeah, special? you know, that was one of the ones you did. I can remember everything about it. I remember I'd just gotten back from Europe. I'd, I'd 
spoke about the 80s. There, there was a period, you know, I, I had an experimental theater background and I had a classical theater background and repertory theater background before I came out here. And um, as a kid, <laughs> I was only 23 when I got here. And um, I got here on a certain amount of hoopla from a play in New York. <clears throat> and uh, William Morris brought me from the west, co from the east coast to the west coast. Um, but it was a new agent there that had told me, "Wait, wait until he goes from here." Wait until he brought me out there, and and I got lost in the shuffle of a very big agency, and uh, he didn't have the power that he was hoping he was going to have when he got there to do what he wanted. And um, and it was all like just get him just get him work and and I started like, Mommy Dearest was my first movie and and that was another kind of story like the mash you, you, it's great in a way because you get your cherry popped and you get like that when I I got that offered to me in the office because it was a, I had to do a nervous breakdown scene in the office as Christopher Crawford being uh, there's two scenes we get cut out of the will and then they show him at the funeral before that uh, going in to see his mother in the coffin and he hasn't said I love you he hasn't said I hate you he hasn't said fuck you goodbye or anything it's just she's dead all of a sudden and he's he's viewing her body and he we haven't seen him since he's a little kid and he's suddenly being brought in to view the body and, and he loses it and it was a very affecting thing, and it wasn't a lot of words. It wasn't a big, and I, I did it in the office, and they just went, "Oh, this is your part." And then I wait five months, while they come around, while Faye Dunaway chewed up the scenery and spat it out, and right. devoured and destroyed the darling, beautiful Diana Scarwood who was playing Christina, and uh, made mincemeat of the director who'd lost his wife during that period. So everybody was just beaten to a pulp by the time they got around to it, and they just wanted to finish. And so when it came to the big nervous break, <laughs> I was waiting five months, that was going to be my big movie break, uh, they just they changed it to just Diana was going to com come in and go out, and I waited seven hours in the nursing home, in the funeral home, in a room filled with flowers. They finally bring me in. I, I just lost my grandmother, and... I was using that in seven hours. That was my first job at the theater. You don't wait seven hours before right. you go on stage. <laughs> oh, they're ready for you, Xander. Okay, good, good, because I'm about to die with emotion. And uh, <laughs> um, the, bring me in, right before the director comes over, he goes, okay, so uh, Diana's going to come out from behind the curtain, and you two haven't seen each other in a while, uh, but you just can greet each other, and then, and then you're going to go out that way. And I'm like, um, so when when do I go in to look at the body? And he's, no, that's a scrub. No, we, we cut that months ago. No, oh, oh, I thought you heard. No, 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 no. She's going to look. And we, we don't have that. Chris actually did. We, 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 it could have been Christine. So anyway, you're going to greet each other and then now. But, but, but my nervous breakdown. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. No, okay, okay. And we're just going to go. And then as he struts away, he's going, and remember everybody, no acting. <laughs> and I just like... My father likened, as I described it to him, what had happened. It's, it's like being gang raped by the Hell's Angels and then run over by a Mack truck. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, sure, no acting. Um, and but that's like having your cherry pot. It's like, all right, that's that's the way it's going to be. All right, I'm tough. I'm from New Jersey. I can handle exactly. that. I'm a Jersey guy. I bail uh, hay, damn it. When I was yeah, twelve, I was exactly. bailing hay. Yeah. And <laughs> so yeah, fairy movie people. Come on. Um, and this is all fairy dust, pixie dust. I can handle it. And uh, so, you know, I, I did right away. I just, I said, I, I freaked out when I saw the, the screen because I, I looked like an insect on acid from another planet because I had so much emotion going on in my face is already really expressive. And I had a theater background and I'm, I had to learn right off the bat to like hide my whole exterior life my i had to all of my bag of tricks because you know on stage the, the athleticism that i had as a kid i could do triple pirouette stop on a dime turn flip you know do stuff because i'd done a lot of gymnastics and a lot of other stuff none of that could show on film where you'd look like an actor so i just went immediately into the small screen and started doing tv and treated that like film school I'm like okay 
I'll just start working. And I thought, I'll get paid to go to school. They need a bad guy on every episode of television, every week. This is an industry. This is like a factory out here. This is like the theater. If I can get work in the theater where they're competing, I've gotten plays where there were a thousand people auditioning for it. I've got those parts. I can get these parts. I can remember the, the, remember the agent that brought me out here. Fabulous old queen. He goes, I'd gotten a, a round-trip ticket, and he goes, change that round-trip to a one-way ticket. You won't <laughs> believe the shit walking around this town calling itself an actor. You're going to start to work, and you won't stop. And, like, right, New York, all right, okay, here we come. I like orange trees. And so, all right, all right, okay, I'll change it to one-way. I did and got that. That was, like, it was a great sort of slap in the face. Because I think I believe everybody coming from New York Either they go back right away because they can't take it, um, you know, because I think anything, you know, you want something, you pay the price. Right. My mother always taught me that one. The dearer the thing, the higher the price for so much, so much. And, she, and be careful what you say you want because you may just get it. I always felt that way about fame. There's no turning back. From that. Right. Once you, yeah. once you got that, you, then I can't go and I can't hide out. Right. I can't sit in a cafe and study people. So, yeah, that's, that's the one thing. people are studying me. Yeah, because they're sitting there going, it's over. actors are going to be like, wait a second. Well, he's doing something right because he's an act. He's a star. You know, and so when you go out, people, and then and you people aren't act. acting naturally around you. Right. The, I saw right away because I was around famous people from day one. I watched how artificially people behaved around they get nervous. They get sweaty. They, they're they're all up their butt, you know, with uh, artificial behavior and and trying to please them, and that freaked me out. So like, yeah, it's a lot of approach avoidance because you want obviously one wants to be well received. One wants great roles. One wants large sums of money. Who wouldn't? Right. Uh, and and one always wants to be appreciated. And I think it gets it gets very conflicting. But for me, I really wanted to figure out what kind of range of disguise I had. Um, I wanted to take my stage technique. I wanted to see how far I could go, what the range of motion was in terms of how far away from myself I could go. So I wasn't just always playing myself because I thought that would get boring. Um, I figured I wanted to keep, like that. what that agent said, I want to start work and not stop. And I didn't want to keep playing the same guy over and over. And so I wanted to suit the role each time. There's a million different, no two people are alike. I knew that there was already, even when I first came out here in you know, 80, there was already a sense, you don't want to obviously, you don't want to go with the Latino or the black guy for the bad guys all the time. It's bad racial stereotyping. But you can go with the guy that's kind of got the high forehead and the intense blue eyes. So I thought, this is perfect for me. <laughs> right. I can play all the psychos and the drug addicts and the uh, emotionally disturbed. And, you know, I could manipulate my emotional, physical energy and, and types. I could play uh, all different accents. I played German terrorists and thuggy types and more upscale types. And, and so it was a great learning ground but there was so much bad tv i remember at one point in the early 80s doing an episode of some terrible show that will remain unnamed and a, a, a race car driver was directing it because the cars so many cars were being flipped okay in the episode um that that was why they hired a race car driver to direct it yeah because he <laughs> yeah and at one point he said uh, could you because it said in the script uh, that my character didn't didn't understand what the woman was saying, and uh, my character was supposed to be very intelligent, but like there was something that he doesn't, you know, I'm the head of some thing, but didn't follow. And he goes, "Could you tilt your head and squint?" I said, "I beg your pardon." He said, "It says you don't understand." I said. That's what dogs do when right. they don't understand. <laughs> you want me to do that here? How about if I just lean in? Right. How about you tilt your head and squint? Yeah, okay. All right. And I, I knew that I had to take a break, and I 
I basically I moved to Europe for a year and lived in a little artist garret wherever I went. I kind of got these places that I got, got you know, squats I called them, but basically I got the house set for a lot of people. And and when I came back, I got a tiny little apartment. I got I was sort of living in a nice place because I was getting work. Now I got a, a like a monk's cell, and I said, "Don't do TV. Just wait for movies." And um, this was the first movie that came along, and I remember the description of it. I remember my girlfriend at the time heard the voice message as it was being described, and she started jumping up and down. Oh my God, you're going to get this part. You're going to get this part. And I got, and I was feeling the same thing inside. Yeah, yeah, that's got a ring to it, doesn't it? And uh, it was to play the the junkie drug dealer for Sid and Nancy, and and I that's where my makeup skills came in, and I broke out my German makeup kit, and I where other people would go in and try and look pretty for an audition. <laughs> See, that's awesome though. That's just I broke every capillary, enhanced them, made it all look like all. I put the soap, uh, egg whites. I think I had a little egg white in my hair to make it look unwashed and and uh, and sticking like he's a street person trying to look punk but not. And I had these uh, just had the right clothes in my repertoire there and putting it together and and uh, got a cigarette before I went in and lit it and I, I don't smoke generally and. Um, let the cigarette smoke go into my eyes. It was a real extreme measure to go in so I could, in a, um, a bottle and a brown paper bag, stagger into the office a bit, like someone off the street. And Vicki Thomas, who remains a dear friend to this day, was the casting director. And they were putting it on tape to send to London because they were already starting filming there. They were shooting more or less in chronological sequence and myself was later in the film. And... I'll, I'll never forget the expression of her face as she looked at my resume picture and then looked at me. <laughs> and she goes, uh, uh, you look very different. <laughs> and and I, without missing me, yes, yeah, it's so nice to be able to go to one audition. We don't have to get all spruced up. <laughs> and uh, there was a certain amount of ad-libbing and, and uh, improvising that was involved. And uh, the director cast me. Uh, and my first scenes were in New York, um, and uh, I, I arrived on the on the set a day or so before we started before I started filming, and went was introduced to Alex, and you know it's very funny. I'll also never forget the first look on his face, where whereas Vicky knew looking at a resume picture that I was an actor who was dressed for the role, um, and then thought I did a pretty good job of faking it as a street person. Um, Alex was so palpably disappointed when because I, I showed up as myself okay. on set. And <laughs> he's like, oh, you're so clean. <laughs> and then he sort of picked his jaw off the ground. I thought somehow we had miraculously found a junkie who could act naturally in front of a camera. Oh, well. Uh, we incorporated some of your ad-lib lines into the script, so I don't suppose we could, with clear conscience, have cast another actor in your role. <laughs> that's a great. No. I mean, that's a, that's you have great Stuart. I'm looking at your resume. You have so many, so much work. It's like hard to, to follow because there's so. I'm sure you have so many great stories because you've been in so much stuff. I mean, you, I, you sit there looking at this, and it's like, <laughs> stents. It's you keep yeah. And now you did some. You did some voice work too, right? Yeah. Now, how did you get into voice work? Um, yeah, I think it was, uh, I had a, a wacky little manager named Stacy Stein, Tracy Stein Sapir at one point, and she was so aggressive, and she drove a lot of people crazy, and I had stopped working with her, but never did I have a more tried and true, devoted advocate <laughs> That's the way it works. Sometimes you leave the people that they're they just, they say all the right things, but they don't really go out and work. And uh, and then, but they have a lot of friends in the industry everywhere. And then sometimes you have people that really do work for you, but they'll alienate a lot of people on your behalf. And and Tracy, bless her heart, was one of those. But she really believed in me, and and uh, she broke me into. I, I think I have to credit her 
because she had some relationships in the animated world and uh, cartoon world, and she just broke down the door and said, this guy can do anything, and got me in, and I just, I, I think it was uh, Gargoyles and Real Monsters and a, a few of those, like uh, Klauski Chupo had a great bunch of uh, cartoons. And then... Um, I, I got with a an agency down the line, Imperium Seven, and they they uh, introduced me, I think, to Andrea Romano at some point in there, and she directs a lot of the Marvel and DC stuff, and she and I are good friends, and she's used me for a lot of stuff since. That's just cool. I mean, I'm, as I said, it's uh, the voices because you're you're trained and you do the acting, but then it must be so different when you you know you you love to do different. Characters, you know, you like the makeup, yeah. and then all of a sudden you're doing a voice. You're probably going, "Shit, it's good." But that's the yeah. ultimate liberation because yeah. you're not even constrained by right. your physical type. Like I always felt like when I did, uh, and like there's some things where I've actually done prosthetics and stuff like that where you can take it to a whole other level. But really, you are constrained by your bone structure, and you're like I'm. An, I was originally born an ectomorph, you know, narrow and 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 lean and and. Uh, I remember even one casting director who passed away who I just she was just always one of my favorite and she's she, one time she cast me in Terminator 2 and and uh she'd cast me in a couple other things she said yeah you're always going to you're always going to bring me in for the shit heel aren't you never the nice she goes well let's face it you're never going to play the nice guy next door I go but I am the nice guy next door. I talk to all the old ladies on my block. Ask every one of them. They'll tell you I am the nice guy next door. And she goes, yeah, but you just have that lean and hungry look about you. And I go, oh, well, whatever. We are what we are physically. And and I have a, a certain plane on my nose that I think that accounts for why I have more often than not played rich guys or or snotty or arrogant sometimes. Maybe maybe I just am. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that accounts for it, but no, I think there's it's like uh, this this one plane on my nose that people think is aristocratic or something, and and I've I can if I grow facial hair I can play lower class guys and I have on certain occasions, but at a certain point you can only do so much with your bone structure. Um, you're gonna look like you're playing dumb, you're dumbing it down or something. I could do a certain amount on stage that's differently, and you can do puffers, pack things in your face to change the way you look but you've got your physical type that you are whereas with animation you can become 300 pounds you can become a little you know I played Snav and Urbab those were characters I'll never get to play right <laughs> <laughs> now you were also in 24 now what was that like because that show I mean that's one of those shows there's certain shows you watch that the people who watch that show are just rabid viewers like i mean there's certain shows that people you know it's like the sopranos or stuff like that you know breaking bad people later got into but the people really notice like they that has a huge following i mean did now did people start recognizing you after that yeah, show? more than in anything else before or since and what was yeah. that like i mean people come up i mean it's for you you're a, you're a chameleon you know all these roles you play then all of a sudden Someone's yeah, recognizing. Like I always, like I always said, you know, you can do a hundred movies, but you do one TV show, right. <laughs> and suddenly you're George, George, Mason, and uh, I will always be eternally grateful because I met my wife, and uh, as a result, have two of the most just my reason for living. My not that the the acting and the artwork wouldn't have been enough, because um, they have kept me a very happy man but my my two little girls are just i'm that putty father i'm just ridiculously in love with my children that's good though yeah, yeah. that's great you know you we'll want that's what that's what that's what you want to hear you know i mean you want to hear parents dote on their oh kids oh my god i'm obsessed they're so much fun and they're such talented uh, extraordinary funny cool people and but i owe it all to 24 because i my wife and i both you know it's like she was in New York and had been brought back and forth for pilots around that time. And she had, it, it, it's funny the way it works sometimes. You got to be able to have, I used to talk about going into auditions uh, with, I, I think I got a lot of auditions early on because there's an animal stink of desperation that actors 
can give off if they want something too badly. It can repel when you walk into the room with that neediness. And I used to psychologically try and counter that with what I called calculated nonchalance, which isn't an attitude. It isn't not doing your homework, because you always got to be prepared. But it's, um, it's not saying, fuck you if you don't hire me, but it's saying, hopefully, you know, I know you need to cast this role, and, and if I'm right for it, you'll be doing yourself a favor, because I will show up. I will know my lines. I will give you lots of interesting choices. And um, I will make your life easier. And if you don't hire me, someone else will be smart enough to. Right. And it's just having that, that little bit of self-esteem that you carry with you into the into the meeting so that you don't just dissolve once you're in there going, oh, God, I want this so bad. So that you suddenly become this animal that just is hungry. That lean and hungry look can can suit you if you're playing a character of that order but at the same time if you're playing somebody who has to have a tremendous amount of as I did a lot, fairly early on a lot of bosses a lot of characters with self-confidence you can't play that and still be going into the room shaking right so how do you counter that and and at a certain point you have to go to the level of like, and I remember this, the same agents, even one in particular, because um, they had some great advice too. The, the ones that said you you got to, you know, can't take these smaller roles. Well, I remember one saying, you got to stop working for chump change. You got to learn the power of the word no. That you got to learn how to say no, because I would just take things uh, as a way in movies to stay in the movie game. Okay. To keep perfecting my game in a way, because I felt I was going to learn more than the habits that you could establish in TV at the time. Get some bad habits really quickly. And a little bit of fear uh, of fame, you know, and so there was a little bit of avoidance of it while loving to act and wanting to keep working. I was like, hmm, yeah, this is a good way to get out of it and still keep working. But she had the good sense saying, you got to stop working for chump chain. You got to be able to say no is the password to the next level, essentially. And um, that's a good piece of advice. And in that, oh, where I forget the point I was going to make. You're talking about your wife. She yeah. Was coming oh, from yeah. New York so coming yeah. So 24. I remember she was same thing for her. You know, they you throw you, you jump on a plane. You know do this, go go do a test deal, run to the... She was like, she had this yoga session she'd paid for, and she was very much looking forward to it, and they wanted her to jump through a hoop, and she said, no, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. If they really want me, they see me, they put myself on tape, they can, they can fly me out if they really want me. And they did. And the same day, they were asking me to come in and read for this part, and I'd, I'd done Apollo 13 not long before with, with Ron Howard and, and, and Imagine. And, and this was this sort of a small role. It was a guest role in the pilot. And I said, eh, you know what? They know me over there. I, I think they like me. And, and uh, I know Ron and I had a good relationship. And, and I said, you know, why don't you ask them to ask Ron about me? And it's just, it should be an offer. I, I, don't, I don't think I should right. have to go chasing this part. I have plans. I had things that I had scheduled for that day, and I, I no, I, no, I, it's not the one of the leads in the pilot. It's 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 a guest role. I can be. I've been offered guest roles. I remember my first one was Miami Vice. It was not long after Sid and Nancy, and I was remember yes, was this fabulous English director named Colin Buxy, who has been my friend ever since. Not because of that, but just, and he just won his first. Uh, his first Emmy this year for directing Fargo. And, you know, he's got a number of years on me, so I just love that things come around to those who deserve it. And, um, you know, I I just felt like, yeah, they can offer that to me. And so I, I had that little, you know, not calculated nonchalance at this point, but knowing your worth, and Sarah did too. And it's funny because it's by that hair's breadth that that could have backfired and we could have both nixed ourselves out of that opportunity, which was an incredible opportunity professionally for both of us. And it was 
our opportunity to meet each other and and i i've jokingly i've told uh my our eldest my eight-year-old about this and she was are you kidding me you could have almost you risked my life that's funny <laughs> well it, you know, it's a great it just shows that you and you both said no and you both Got the part, and we fell in love. Now you have a family. Yeah. I mean, that's that's classic. We've about ten minutes left. You have great stories. I've been noticing you play a villain, but you've been playing sheriffs a lot. How did I mean? I know you on CSI. You were a sheriff on the Mentalist. You were a sheriff. How Shanghai does, Noon. How, I think how it's did, Shanghai Noon. Do you, do you think you have a sheriff look? I mean, you you. I don't know. Maybe I don't see sheriff in you. No, I think it was Shanghai Noon. That was an archetypal sheriff. I was playing uh, Nathan Van Cleef, Sheriff Nathan Van Cleef, and and that was uh, an homage to Lee Van Cleef, and uh, so I uh, I achieved a kind of you know because I'm a painter and a sculptor, there was a way to sculpt the the look of the character with the mustache with the costume. Joseph Poro, who did uh, Salem, same uh, costume designer, just a brilliant costume designer, a perfect example of what I'm talking about with going in there and going, let's create and sculpt, in a way, a visual archetype. And I'll use my ability to transform and uh, vocal transformation, physical transformation, with the enhancement of uh, makeup and, and facial hair, and the costume, and those things together sort of hit uh, an archetypal chord that then stuck. And so anybody that saw that then went, yeah, that's that's a sheriff. And then on the closer, on you know, I've I've played a lot of my my mother's from Texas. Okay, bless her heart, she's turning a hundred and two this May. She really, had me in her forties. That's what gave me the right to have a little bit later in my life <laughs> but uh all, all sorry, of, yeah, how about that? yeah how about that wow how about that let's give it up to margaret harper give it up for margaret willard, willard scott she willard scott better give her some props she yeah really I, come on willard I, scott I, you know, I went to the to the mat for uh president obama twice for some fundraisers and i thought somehow or another we were going to get a little letter from margaret because she's a hardcore liberal democrat from way back and but no nothing obama if you're listening <laughs> send my mother a letter as my daughter would say um and uh but she's a texan originally lives in connecticut now um and all of my kin are from texas and so there's a, a i've played a lot of southerners because i just grew up enough around that for that to be just very much a part of my body language and, and uh, natural vocal patterns, uh, as well as the New Jersey East Coast thing, and and so uh, maybe the laconic falling into that sheriff mode is pretty easy that way. Because you're a mentalist, you were a sheriff too. Yeah, that's right. You were a bad sheriff. Well, I started out as a perfectly affable, avuncular sheriff. I had no idea. I thought I was the reddest of red herrings. I took that role because I thought it was going to be a little comic relief for me. <laughs> now, that was my closest stab, dare I say, at comic relief. Now, do you and then it turned out to be... Do you love being a villain? Red. When you get to play a bad person? Do you just because... What, what would you rather play? A snooty person would you play? A sheriff would you play? Or a villain. What what role gives you the best? You, what is your like? Just you love when you see a role and you go, I can get that. I can't wait. Oh, I enjoyed at different points sinking my teeth and some bad guys. I, I did have a lot of fun tearing it up with some psychos along the way. But really, I don't have much heart for it anymore. Since becoming a dad, I'm just a big softy, and I, I honestly think. What never gets to be revealed is my comedic ability, which I had for years on stage. And I just played, uh, because I did calculate to get working and to get uh, going, I went into a lot of offices uh, to get roles to convince them. Because I remember casting directors early on, I was a sweet young thing. And they, I had like curly of mice and men on my resume as an actor. And they said, well, just take that off your resume because you're never going to play those parts. <laughs> Who are you kidding? 
And I looked sweet and vulnerable, and I played a lot of sweet and vulnerable things on stage and, and starting out. And uh, I kind of felt like that the to get work that, you know, I was always going to be, I could get the, the young leading men on stage, but, you know, I started, I had a receding hairline, and maybe I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to compete with all the pretty boys because there was just a sea of them out here. And I didn't want to feel less than. So I knew that, you know, you needed to have a certain amount of sex appeal or whatever to play bad guys too. Um, and I thought, you know, it's just like, I don't know. If you look at psychologically, um, you don't yeah, want to be rejected or something. So I, I knew I was safe competing in that realm. And, I, I, you know, it's so funny. They didn't know what the hell to do with me. I remember going to audition after audition after audition. You'd be in different pools. You'd go one day and it'd be like all the handsome square-jawed cowboys with their cowboy hats on one day. And then the next day, you'd be in a room with all the nerds with their glasses and their bow ties the next day. And you go, well, I'm not really right either of these two <laughs> categories. And then at one point, I remember being in another group and they said, you know what we are? We're the offbeat left of center guys. And that's accurate. And what I haven't gotten to do enough of that I would like to do more of are the three-dimensional human beings that, are, that have a sense of humor, that have a, a sense of kindness. And I've, um, I've, I've gotten to parlay a lot of what I've done in the misapprehension of an audience's expectation through, oh, he's not, he's not going to be bad, like in Safe is a movie that I love that I did with Todd Haynes and Julianne Moore, where you think he's going to be bad, but he just turns out to be ill-equipped and uh, unable to deal well with the situation. But he's not bad. And or in Gattaca, where you think this this guy is going to turn Ethan Hawke in, and then he, oh, he's not bad. And or a lot of others where you think he's going to be good, and then he turns out to be bad. But there's a mysterious element and I did a, a web series quite unexpectedly called The Booth at the End that I'm really proud of that kind of got lost in the Hulu realm um, that, uh, you know, by by a fluke could have ended up at Netflix. Um, and I, I don't know what Hulu's up to these days, but I don't know if enough people are seeing it. But it got a lot of attention for a little while. I don't know what they, I don't know how they go about marketing their stuff. I'm not sure what they're up to these days. Um, but uh, that was a great project. And that character had a, an element of something that I would love to do more of, this mysterious, uh, otherworldly quality that I think that all the roles that I've played that are neither this nor that nor the other thing have helped create a very interesting non-brand brand. So that interests me as well as comedy. What's good? Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad I, I'm glad we got to set this up. Thank you. Great Steve. stories. We're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to have you back. I didn't even talk like about any of your career really. I didn't get a chance because you have the stories. That's all you need. Stories. Stories. It's makes all my about job makes my job easy. When you gotta get stories. Now, can people? How can people? Do you, do you tweet? Are you Twitter? I do a little tweeting. I got I got twisted into the tweet with uh, the, with the mentalist and. Uh, and and you say and, and it kind of like creeps me out a little bit to be associated with that particular character, but I I did love Bruno Heller and working with him, and and I felt very honored to have been chosen to to play that character. But uh, what, what's um, your Twitter handle? Twitter twi Twitter handle. I'm just I'm I'm Xander Berkeley, um, and it's just I'm the uh, with the authenticated indication. You got the blue. Got you the got blue. the blue. I don't got the blue. True blue. Anyway, anyway, and uh, do you have a website? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine from my hometown in Mendham insisted on putting a website together for me, and I, 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 I am shy at the end of the day about all the uh, attention. So, but he did it, and it's an incredible catalog of stuff, and it's uh, xanderberkeley.net. Cool. We're yeah. gonna check it out. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. People, Steve. Uh, check me out at Cooper Talk. I tweet. I tweet a lot at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have about three over three hundred episodes up there. Or you can find me on iTunes and Stitcher. Just type in Cooper Talk, one word. You can get it there. Also, email me, Cooper at coopertalk.net and I want to give a shout out to my affiliates that play. I want to give a shout out to the, uh, All Radio X. Brody James runs a great programming over there. 
WSDI, WSDICHicago.com with Steve uh, Benz, the405media.com, and rantradionetwork.com. And also, I'll be starting to be played on wildfireradio.com straight out of Collinswood, New Jersey, right next to my hometown. So check them out. They have great shows. They have Joe Matteris. They have Big Daddy Graham. They have relief pitcher Mitch Williams as a show. So that's starting this Saturday. You can listen to them whenever you want to listen. So that's about it. Check out Xander, uh, Xander at Twitter. I hope I'm going to follow you only when I get home. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and you have a good week. I'm going to go and get something to eat, I think. Have a good one. Thanks, Steve.